Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And by the way, if you're new to the Bible, uh, there's a table of contents in the first couple pages. You can find the, the uh, page number for the book of Matthew. It's at the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Please follow along and listen as God's word is read. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, And all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? But bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let all Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Friends, as we get into God's Word, I want you to know that God speaks to us through His Word. Faith comes by hearing. I want want you to fully expect God to speak to you this morning and increase your faith. So let's pray together and let's just ask God to do that very thing. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come into your Word. We ask that you would do just that, that you would speak to us and increase our faith through your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The 1972 comedy, What's Up, Doc? Has anybody seen it? No? Barbara Streisand? No? Nobody? All right. Barbara Streisand plays this character named Judy. And uh, she's being apologized to by this guy named Howard. And sitting on a plane together, Howard kind of leans back and he says, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry for what I said back there. I want you to know that I love you. And then Barbara Streisand, she, she kind of like tilts her head a little bit and, and she coos, love never says, I'm sorry. And then she flutters her eyes. And then there's just this, this brief pause 
And Howard, who has sort of this, this cold look on his face, says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> love never has to say, I'm sorry. Look, many of us know that love often says, I'm sorry. Right? For some of us, you might say, man, my love for others generally looks like me saying, I'm sorry. Or maybe you might reverse it. You might say, you know, my lack of love is evidenced in the fact that I cannot say I'm sorry. But we all know that love often means I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Two of the most loving words that anybody can say to you. I'm sorry. Now, how much more so with God? Our loving relationship with God begins with an, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The psalmist says, I confess my sins. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry. Let me frame the text for you before we get into it. This whole bit, if you remember about with, with King Herod killing the innocents, chasing after the baby Jesus, that all happened when Jesus was a child. The next time we see Jesus in, John, in, in Matthew's narrative, Jesus is a grown man. And we see here that he comes to John the Baptist and he's being baptized. And so as Jesus comes, one question that I ask is this, why is Jesus baptized? So let's just kind of jump to the end of the text really quick and deal with that question and get a glimpse into who Jesus is as Matthew reveals him to us through this text. Why is Jesus ba baptized? Well, we're going to look a little bit more into it, but what we see is that baptism is a sign of confession, sign of repentance, turning from sin, new life. Has Jesus sinned? No. no. Did Jesus have any sins to confess? No. no. So then why was Jesus baptized? John Calvin said it's really simple. Jesus is baptized because he is being obedient to the Father. We see this in verse 15. John himself asks Jesus, whoa, 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 why do I need to baptize you? John himself says, wait a second, something's not right here. You should be baptizing me. In some ways, John is spot on and, and right in the way he's thinking and feeling, but then Jesus answers the reason he needs to be baptized. We see it in verse 15. He answers him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is obedient to the Father in every way as we ought to be obedient, even in his baptism. He's fulfilling all righteousness. Additionally, Jesus's, Jesus' baptism uh, reminds us and shows us that we follow after him. We are then baptized into Jesus. Now, as Jesus goes under the water and as he comes out of the water, uh, in some ways, this is sort of the crowning of the king. And there are two affirmations that we see at the end of the text that say, this is indeed the king. The first affirmation is, uh, is, is this, a dove. The Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, showing us that Jesus has the power to, to he, he wields the Holy Spirit, he can send the Holy Spirit, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't like speculate into this and say, oh, maybe this is where Jesus got saved. 
Maybe this is where Jesus became regenerate. You know, people have speculated, and that's called heresy. All right? So we don't want to go beyond what the scriptures say to us here in this, in this text. The Spirit descends. Jesus has the Spirit. And then secondly, there's a voice, the Father's voice from heaven. I wish I could have been there. As the, the Father himself says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Everything about his life, everything about his life pleases the Father. This is the King. The King of heaven has been introduced, and this King pleases the Father in every way. In this King, there is no shadow of impurity. But now let's just stop there for a moment and turn to us. What do we look like compared to this King? One preacher put it this way. He says, you know the greatest commandment, love God and love others? You know that? He says, there has never been a, a, a second in your life. There's never been one second in your life in which you have fully loved God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and loved your neighbor as yourself. There's never been a second in which you have fully did that. And there has never been a, been a second in Jesus' life in which he did not love God with all his heart, mind, and soul, and love his neighbor as himself. Meaning, Jesus is absolute righteousness. This king reigns in absolute purity. Everything he does is right and good and pure and holy. And here we are, right? Kingdom being introduced in Matthew. The king being crowned, lifted up, revealed by God himself that this is the king. And here we are. Question. How do we get into the kingdom? Silver? Gold? Righteousness? Good works? How do we get into the kingdom? Following his law perfectly? How do we get in? This is the point of John's passage. And it begins with two words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Repentance. I want to talk to you today on this theme. Repentance. Repentance. We come, we come to the gates of the, the Jesus' kingdom not wearing beautiful robes of our own righteousness, not carrying sil- silver and gold, but we come naked, Broken, beaten, destitute, on our knees in repentance. This is how Matthew introduces the king and the kingdom. So let's just look at it. I want to keep this simple. Two, Two headings. First, how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, how to show you've entered the kingdom of heaven. First, how to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, this is election season, and uh, I don't know if this is a bad thing. It's probably a bad thing. But the presidential election season, this has been the most entertaining election season I can remember. Like, I'm really just being entertained. It's kind of enjoyable, right? It's also extremely troubling. All right, but we've got to admit it's entertaining. Why? Well, I wasn't going to say names. All right, but 
one, one thing that this, this, this election uh, is displaying is the, how, how vastly different uh, the, the political parties are as well as even those inside the political parties. I mean, we have like every bit of the spectrum here. That's possible, right? That's <laughs> what it seems like. But here's one thing that I think we can all agree on, all right, from Trump to, to Clinton, from Cruz to Sanders. Here's one thing I think we can all agree on. Things aren't the way they should be. I think we can all kind of start with that and go from there. Things aren't the way they should be. Now, that's really what's happening here in Matthew. You have this kingdom revolution that's taking place, and all of these people who are looking around at Israel, they're, they're, they're Jews, they're living in the nation, they're, they're doing, doing the thing that they do, and they're looking around, they're saying things aren't the way they should be. You've got this guy at the center of it all named, what? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. If I was a good Baptist, I would make a Presbyterian joke at this point. I would say something like he's called John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian, right? But I'm not that kind of Baptist, so I won't make that joke, all right? But look, going on, looking at John the Baptist here, he's, he, he's, he's out in the wilderness. He's preaching this gospel of repentance, turning from the sin, recognizing that things aren't the way they should be. And you have this movement of people, this kingdom revolution, if you would, people who are, who are following John and they're saying, agreeing with John, things aren't the way they should be in the nation and in my life. Things aren't the way they should be. We need to change. We need to repent. Everybody say the word repent. We need to repent. We need to turn. Things aren't the way they should be. So what is true repentance? What does repentance look like in this chapter? First, repentance means confessing your sin. They're coming to John in confession of their sins. Now before they... Before they uh, before they actually begin to confess their sins, they're hearing what John is saying. And John is saying this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might imagine yourself hearing on the weather channel that we are going to have the greatest storm our region has ever seen. And it's going to happen tonight at 5 o'clock. And you, you get a ladder and you, you climb up to your rooftop and you're sitting up on your roof or on your stoop or wherever you can kind of see the horizon. And the, the clouds begin to roll in. And you just see this ominous like darkness that's coming toward us and rain and lightning and wind. And all of a sudden, it just, it just goes dark all around you. You run inside and you say, the storm has arrived. The storm has arrived. That's kind of like what's going on with John's message. It's here. It's among us. Now, has the storm fully arrived yet? No. Right? Your house is still standing. You didn't get swept off the roof. You were able to run in the door. Now you're all hunkering down, getting ready for the storm. Yet it's also here. It's among us. It's at hand. Does that make sense? So to say that the kingdom is at hand is to say, it's here. It's, it's now. It's happened. The, the Christ has come. The, it, it, it's, it's imminent. And we've got to get ready for it. It's coming. It's here, but not yet. Now, John, this, uh, 
this, uh, this man from the wilderness. He's out in the wilderness. He's preaching out in the wilderness. In verse 4, we see uh, a couple interesting details about him. We see that he's wearing uh, uh, camel's hair, garments, leather belt around his waist, locust, wild, and hu- wild locust and honey. Uh, sort of like interesting details, like why tell us that about John? And it seems kind of random until we begin to realize that Matthew is connecting John with Elijah. Very clear as we get into it. And in the book of Malachi, it says this, Elijah will announce the fearsome day of the Lord. What he is saying is this, the fearsome day of the Lord is at hand. The storm that has been predicted is here. It's arrived. It's, ne- it's, it's, it's now. Get ready for it. You say, fearsome? How is the kingdom of God fearsome? Well, friends, the kingdom of God is only a good thing if there's a way into it. For, for sinners, wrap your mind around this. For sinners, if there's no way into the kingdom of God, it's only bad for you. You're not going to fare well as the kingdom of God is set up in all of its righteousness. It's only danger. But it is delight if there is a way in. So John turns and he opens the door and he says, this is how you get ready. This is how you come into the kingdom. This is how the kingdom is not dreadful, it's delightful. And he says, repent, repent. And so they come and they are doing what? They're confessing their sins. They're confessing their sins. On our seventh anniversary for my wife and I, we had a vow renewal ceremony. We had had a couple rough years, kind of got off track. And so the vow renewal ceremony was for my wife and I to kind of stand with some friends and in some ways go back to the beginning. Remind ourselves, this is, this is what it's about. We're going back. We're going back through the motions. Of course, we weren't being married all over again. But we were going back to the beginning. Now, where's John at as he is preaching? Anybody know from the text? Where is he? He's in the wilderness. Thank you. He's in the wilderness, and he's preaching. And as people are confessing their sins, what is he doing to them? Baptizing them where? In the river. Does this sound familiar? From the wilderness into the river? Does this sound like anything that we might have heard before in the scriptures? Exactly. Moses in the wilderness and Joshua leading the people into what? The land. The promised land. The land of peace. And what do the people do? They go through the river. He's taking them back to the beginning. saying, we've got to go back. Things aren't the way they should be. And they're coming to him, and they are, it says, confessing their sins. They're naming their sins, and they're confessing uh, where, where they have gone wrong. Now, for any, uh, give an example, for any male that has been a Christian for a number of years, you've probably been in some kind of accountability group where you confess your sins. 
Now, let's just be straight up. What sin is usually confessed in those accountability, accountability groups? Nobody wants to say it. Jealousy. Jealousy. Exa- exactly. Jealousy. The- right. You looked at it again? Yeah. Yeah, me too. What you going to order? Mm-hmm. Was that confession? No. No. Look, naming your sin is not confession. Confession is not just sitting back and naming our sins to each other. Or going to a priest and just listing your sins. That's not confession. Confess means to... Uh, let me read it to you. I want to get it right here. It, uh, confession means... To speak the same. To speak the same. Confessing your sins is this. It's, it's speaking reality. It's saying this is who Christ is. This is who God is. This is who God has called me to as his child, as a citizen of heaven. This is where I don't line up with that. And it's to begin confessing the reality of your soul. Confessing the reality of your life. Not just merely the actions. It goes beyond that. For example, a single saint might, instead of just merely confessing the fact that he or she uh, had sexual relations with someone else, no, to, to truly confess might be to say, I am actually discontent in the fact that God hasn't given me a spouse. I'm, I'm not happy with the way my life is right now. And I'm seeking to have something that God has not given me. Now we're getting into some real confession. You see the difference there? So repentance is first to confess your sins. Name reality. What is it? What, in what ways is your life opposed to the reality of the kingdom of heaven? Filled with greed. Hoarding money. Why? Sexual sins that we continue to go back to. Hating others. Hating men. Demeaning women. Despising my own spouse, perhaps. What, what, what sins must you confess? In what ways must you uh, recognize that I am outside of reality right now? And I've got to confess the same. I need to name the same. I need to, I need to state where I have fallen. Friends, for us, confession should just be a normal part of our relationships with each other. This isn't something we do next to a priest and, or, or, or in some specific one-on-one setting. It can't happen in a one-on-one accountability group, but it should also just be normal. We should just like regularly be, as we recognize that there are like aspects of my life that just don't line up with reality of God's kingdom, I'm, we're just like regularly naming these things to each other. Just regular, like a culture of confession of sin. And friends, everything that comes into the light is forgiven. We actually, in our church, we had someone who got saved because they heard other Christians in a small group confessing their sins to each other. And, and he came to realize the only way that that can happen is if these things are forgiven. Because this is ridiculous what's happening. How are these people not embarrassed? 
Look, I do these things, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Why? Why is it that we can have a culture of confession? It's because we're forgiven. Friends, if we don't have a culture of confession in our church, we've got to ask the question, do we really believe that we're forgiven? Do we really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if you do, why are you, why, why are you trying to present yourself as better than you actually are? You've got to get over yourself and look to, look to the cross. Confession is to... To, or repentance, rather, is to confess sin. Secondly, it's, it's to turn from sin and embrace godly sorrow. Repent literally means a turning, to turn. I'm going this way, and I turn, and I go back this way. That is repentance. I just repented of walking off the ed- edge of that, our little podium. Accompanied with godly sorrow. Now, let me uh, explain it this way. If you were about to get on an airplane and you learned that the pilot is going to, while you're up in the air, or let's say both pilots, or all three pilots, however many they have, they're all going to drink some concoction and commit suicide, uh, and you're basically committing suicide yourself if you get on this plane, how many of you are going to get on the plane? You're going to do what about getting on the plane? Pray about it, okay? And let's say you prayed. (laughs) Okay, you're going to not do it. You're going to change your mind about getting on the plane, right? Look, repentance means I am recognizing that my life does not reflect God's reality, and it's a changing of mind that's accompanied with sorrow, with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Now, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians. Keep your thumb in Matthew, because we're going to go back here. But turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. What we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. It says this in the ESV, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Can you wrap your mind around that? First, having sorrow for your sin really doesn't mean anything. The question is, what kind of sorrow do you have? Is it godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow? Look, even the world feels bad about the things they've done. What's the difference? Godly sorrow leads to life. Worldly sorrow leads only to death or destruction. Why is that? Godly sorrow is accompanied with the ability to not have regret. And it's a little different than the way we usually use the word regret. But rather, it's the word that, that connotates the idea of guilt, carrying guilt. Meaning godly sorrow for sin does not carry guilt with it. You don't linger in your guilt. Friends, if you are lingering in your guilt because of your sin, that is, over here, worldly sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow does not have guilt. Why? Because godly sorrow is a company with the cross. It's driven by the cross of Jesus Christ. The reality that your sin 
was placed on Christ, and he paid for your sins. He absorbed the what? The guilt for your sin on the cross. And so for you to walk with guilt is to deny what Jesus did for you. So true repentance means that you have godly sorrow. It means that, yes, you're sorry, you're broken, you're weeping. Psalm 51. You're torn up about it. But you're not, you're not beating yourself up over it. There's a difference. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, destroys you. It destroys community. It destroys friendships. What do you do with it? Friends, without the cross, what do you do with your screw-ups? What do you do with it? There's nothing you can do with it. You just bury it somewhere in your soul. And you cover it up. That's why everybody's walking around like with, drunk and getting high and like you name like all of the cover-ups that we do in our life because we can't deal with the guilt that we carry. Repent of your worldly sorrow. Turn to the cross. From there, yes, true brokenness. There will be evidence of sorrow in your life. But it's a sorrow without guilt. It's a sorrow that leads you to life. It leads you to fruit. And that's the next thing that we see here in this text. True repentance. It's confession. It's turning from your sin. It is embracing godly sorrow. But true repentance bears fruit. True repentance bears fruit. An analogy I've used a hundred times. You walk in front of a train, walking in front of a train, you realize you're about to die. Repentance happens when you change your mind. All right, you have godly sorrow about the fact that you just walked into the front of the train. You change your mind about your course of action. And the fruit of repentance is when you jump out of the way and you live. True repentance bears fruit. When I was a kid, we had a cherry tree in our backyard. Do you know how I knew that it was a cherry tree? Thank you, Tony. Because it produced cherries. That's exactly right. That's how I knew. I would have never known, other than the fact that it gave us cherries. Friends, how do we know that we're repentant? How do we know that we're, we're Christians? How do you know that you're a Christian? Taste the fruit. Look for fruit. See if there's any fruit. And this whole idea of oh, I know I'm a Christian because I said a prayer when, I'm, when I was eight. This whole idea of like I was baptized, that's how I know I'm a Christian. No, look for fruit. Is there fruit? Repentance, turning from the way of the earth and turning to the kingdom of heaven means that you bear heavenly fruit. You look more and more like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't necessarily mean that overnight you wake up and you're perfect. It doesn't mean that at all. Guys, trees grow slowly. 
There was never a moment where I pulled out a chair in the spring and sat down in front of the cherry tree and with my, with my friends and my neighbors and my brother and brothers and sister and said, okay guys, let's sit back because right now over the next five minutes, cherries are about to form on the tree. We never did that. We never actually sat and watched a cherry form. Why? Because it happens slowly. Right? But over time, there better be some cherries or the tree is either not a cherry tree or it's sick. And that should lead us to concern. Is there evidence of repentance in your life? Is there fruit in your life? What might that look like? It might mean that you stop hoarding money. It might mean that you get a job. It might mean that you repent, that you turn from the, 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 the racism that you have held and you begin to actively pursue friendships with people of a different color. It means that you might begin to love your spouse in an entirely new way. It might mean that you get some help for your anger. What does fruit look like for you? What are some fruits, if you would, in your life right now, let's say yes, evidence of repentance. What is some fruit that you're praying for? God, would you produce this in me? Would you change this in me? Listen, if you're not a Christian, one of the great things that we get from this text right here is this. People change. People change. And you say, yeah, I know people change for the worse. Yep, true. People also change for the better. Christians are a people who believe that people change. It's amazing. It's amazing. People change. The Christian church is built off of wicked sinners who changed. And God can change you. Confess your sins. Embrace godly sorrow. Turn from your sin. And just watch as the Holy Spirit produces fruit in your life. It might not happen overnight, but I guarantee you that over a period of time, you're going to look back and you're going to say, wow, I've changed. I didn't used to think this way, and now I do. I used to struggle with this, and now I don't. We change. All right, let's just close with this last bit here. What's the, how do we show this? So this is how we enter the kingdom, through repentance, through coming with nothing. How do we show that we enter the kingdom? Well, this is why John is called John the Baptist. This is how we show it. That word baptist or baptize is the word baptizo, which literally means to dip. This is, John was called this because this is what he was doing. He was dipping. We could literally translate it, John the Dipper. That might be, really, honestly, it might be a more faithful translation of, of the word bapt, uh, baptism, baptize, and John the Baptist. Now, why is he doing this? What is this baptism, particularly in this context right here, what does this signify? What's he pointing out with this? Why is he doing this? Well, let's remember the story what's, uh, as to what's going on. He's baptizing Jews, coming out to him in the wilderness. They're going through the river. Now, baptism wasn't something that John invented. Baptism, for a number of centuries prior to this, had been uh, one of the four rites of passage for a Gentile becoming a Jew. 
So if a Gentile was repenting of turning from their own uh, way of life and they were embracing Yahweh as, as, as their God, they would go under the water. They would be dipped. It was a washing ritual, symbolic, of the fact that, that, that you're, you're, you're new, you're, you're, you're clean. So Gentiles, those on the outside, in order to come in, were being baptized. But wait a second, what's happening in this text? Who's being baptized in this text? The Jews, not the Gentiles. It's a given for the Gentiles. But what's interesting, what's really shocking, is that Jews are being baptized. And we see this directly hit head on. Look what John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the religious leaders of, of Israel. They come to John, and they are uh, j- just sort of watching. They're, they're gawking, if you would. They're probably looking for cr- ways to critique and to criticize. And John looks at them. He calls them, you brood of vipers, which, you know, that's one way to get at somebody, I guess. You brood of vipers. Uh, who warned you to flee? flee from the wrath to come. And then he says, bear fruit keep, in keeping with repentance, which means we must bear fruit. Then he says in verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of, for Abraham. You see, what John knows is that the religious leaders are trusting in their ethnicity. They're trusting in the fact that they're Jews. They were born and they were circumcised as babies in the Jewish family. And that's where they find their righteousness. And John is saying, no, you've got to come in as a Gentile. You can't assume that you're part of it. You can't assume that you're part of the kingdom. And then he gives these two warnings. He gives the warning of an axe. There's an axe coming to chop down this cherry tree because it's not bearing any fruit. Hint, hint, Pharisees. Destruction is coming. He says there's a winnowing fork, which is the idea of, of uh, wheat and chaff, and the, the fork would throw, throw it up into the air, and the, the wind would drive the chaff away, and then they would collect the chaff, and they would burn it. Your pride is leading you toward destruction. The difference between the Pharisees and everybody that's being baptized here is this. The Jews who are following John the Baptist are saying, we are on the outside. Something is not right. We're on the outside and we need to come in. We're not naturally part of the kingdom. So he's calling true Israel out. And he's saying, come in. All who hear, respond and come in. Friends, if, if this word of Jesus Christ is falling onto fertile ground and you believe the gospel, come in and be baptized. That's what John is doing here. Baptism is, is to say I was on the outside and I need to come in. Baptism is to say that I need to be washed. I need to be... I, I, I need to be United with Christ, I need to be united with his body. I'm not naturally born that way. So many of us believe that since we were brought up in a Christian home, that we're good to go. I was speaking with a man once who was clearly not a Christian, right? 
like he was doing some really crazy things. No sign of regeneration in his life. And I asked him if he was religious, and he said, yeah, I'm Christian. He said it as if I would say I'm white. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, who, it's just kind of part of the way I was born. Nothing I can do about it. I'm Christian. Right? No. We, we, we recognize that we're, we're outside. And things aren't the way they should be. And we need to come in. We need to turn. Two handles I want to give you before we, before we leave. Two handles to latch on to. Number one, repent and be baptized. Repentance is admittance into the kingdom. Baptism is just simply how we show it. Coming in, once an outsider, now an insider in the kingdom of God. Friends, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, do not leave here without knowing that Christ is indeed your Savior. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. If, if your eyes have been opened, if your heart is open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, turn to him. Receive his forgiveness and show it through baptism. When I was a kid, I was at a little uh, backyard Bible study and they asked, if anybody wants to become a Christian, raise your hands. I raised my hand about 150 times growing up, you know. Went to a VBS. They said, walk the aisle. You know, those traditions aren't bad. But how does, what, is, what is the biblical way of showing that we want to be saved? Showing that we are saved. What is the biblical way of showing that we believe this? That we're in him? What's the, what does the Bible say? Raise your hand? No. Nope. Walk the aisle? Do 10 jumping jacks? Be baptized. Secondly, proclaim that the king has come. Our job is not like John's to where we're proclaiming that he's coming. We're not preparing the way for him. We say the king has come. He's here. He's arrived. There's a kingdom within the kingdom. Kingdom of heaven on earth. I'm a citizen of that kingdom. And if you're dealing with guilt because he should have done more, you need to know that the king is here. And that you can find happiness and joy and forgiveness in his kingdom. You're dealing with like the self-doubt or the shame of what we, what it, what it, the, the struggle of life and all that we go through and just believing that we're not good enough. And we, we proclaim, friends, that the, the king has arrived. You can be a citizen of his kingdom. And we speak the gospel with words. We don't come with our own righteousness. We don't come with our own actions or silver and gold. We come to the cross, seeing that Jesus died for our sins and all who trust in him are forgiven of their sins now and have the promise that one day they will be raised to new life and freed forever from even the presence of sin, living forever with the King, Jesus Christ. How do we come into the kingdom? Psalm 38, 18. I confess my sins. I'm sorry for my sins. And we find forgiveness at the cross. 
nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, naked. I come to Thee for dress. Helpless, I look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray.